is Drew. My wife, Jessie, and I have been married for going on 19 years. Three kids. Emma, Grace, 13. Rhett will be 11 next month. And Mercy will be five next month. So, uh, listen, church planting is, is close to our hearts. Uh, our kids have grown up in this this kind of context, and so I just want to encourage you, what you're doing here uh, as a part of this church, uh, sharing life together, seeking to, uh, how do y'all say it, enjoy Christ together, um, that Jesus might be put on display in our city is, is important, uh, and God is faithful uh, to, to hold you up. Uh, to bear fruit, uh, a lot of which you may not see. And so uh, just be encouraged this morning. I love your pastor, Chad, uh, dear friend, great brother. Um, we had lunch this week at Magic Sushi. Uh, all you can eat, that's how y'all do it over here on this, side of the, on this side of the city. We ate lots of sushi. It was great. We prayed together. It was wonderful. So um, Exodus chapter 19. I love the book of Exodus. It is hard to, it would be hard to overstate the importance of the Exodus event for uh, the rest of the Bible, uh, indeed, for us as followers of Christ today. Uh, many of you might remember in Matthew chapter 2, Matthew quotes Hosea 11, saying, Out of Egypt I have brought my son. Uh, Matthew's speaking of Jesus. Hosea in Hosea 11 is referring to Israel. The son in Hosea 11 is Israel. And so there in the very beginnings of the Gospels, we have Matthew making a, a direct connection between Jesus' work and the Exodus. Uh, one of my favorite Bible scholars, commentators, uh, is the late J. Alec Mateer. Um, and upon Thinking about meditating on the question of what's the importance of the Exodus for us today, uh, he kind of went on a, a mental journey and said, Think about what an Israelite would say if you happened across an Israelite wandering in the desert uh, on their way to Canaan, just come out of Egypt, passed through the Red Sea, and you were like, Hey man, who are you? Who are you? What, what would he say? Matir says, it might go something like this. I was in a foreign land under the sentence of death. I was in bondage. But I took shelter under the blood of the Lamb. And our mediator led us out. And we, we crossed over. And now we're on our way to the promised land. But we're not there yet. But God's given us... His, his law to, to make us a community. And he's given us the tabernacle because, I mean, you have to live by grace and forgiveness. And his presence is in our midst. And he's going to stay with us until we get home. That's exactly what a Christian would say. Almost word for word. And so you, we, we really can't. Uh, I think Exodus like no other book in the scriptures, opens up for us the New Testament. It stands as God's great salvation event, gospel in the Old Testament event for us. And so we'll begin our time in Exodus 
19 this morning, and Exodus 19 is a, a pretty big hinge point in the book, and so I don't know how many weeks, I don't know how many years you are going to be in the book of Exodus, but we're at a hinge point. This is a, this is a turning point in the book of Exodus. So for the last couple of uh, months, you've been, you've been walking along with Israel. They've, they've come out of, I'm talking Israel's months, they came out of uh, they came out of Egypt, they crossed over the Red Sea, and for the last few months, Israel has been wandering in the wilderness. And so when we get to chapter 19, what happens is Israel goes from moving to staying put. They go from moving to staying put. And this speaks to the importance of what is going to happen at Sinai. So they're going to be at Sinai, in the Sinai wilderness, for over a year at this point. And so, as we come to the, the Sinai wilderness, uh, Yahweh has redeemed His chosen people, right? You've seen this over the last several weeks. He's redeemed His chosen people. He's brought now His bride to Himself. It's here at Sinai that Israel will come to know their Redeemer as He reveals Himself to them through the giving of his law, through the giving of his word. He's going to make covenant with them. He's going to call them to obedient worship and aim to bless them through the giving of his word. And that is the pattern that we're going to kind of organize our time around this morning. Uh, indeed, it is God's pattern. Salvation, obedience, blessing. Salvation, obedience, blessing. We cannot afford to rearrange God's pattern this morning. So as we jump into chapter 19 here this morning, uh, I've got three kind of main points or main headings for us. Uh, number one, God's promise, salvation. Number two, God's call, obedience. And number three, God's, uh, I don't even know, intention, aim, I forgot already, uh, blessing. Okay, salvation, obedience, blessing. So I've told you what they are. Let me pray for us, and then I'll tell you what they are. Father, we're grateful for the chance to stand and sit, God, under your word this morning. Uh, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would make the words on the pages live for us today. Pray that you would show us your pattern, the pattern of how you work, God, the pattern of how you have worked, have always worked from garden and to garden, Lord, we, we pray that you would show us uh, the glory of Christ, cause us to, to treasure him deeply, cause us to, uh, as King's Church's mission statement says, God, that we would enjoy Jesus, uh, that we would enjoy the beauty of our salvation. And we ask that you do that this morning for the glory of Christ in our lives, in this church, and in our city. Amen. Amen. Number one, God's promise. God's promise of salvation. What was in the heart of God as it relates to his chosen people? We can trace this all the way back uh, even farther than Genesis 12, but for our purposes this morning, let's start in Genesis 12. Genesis 12, chapter, uh, chapter 12, verse 2, God stands, calls Abraham to himself and tells him, and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And then if you flip over a few pages to chapter 15 of Genesis, he again tells Abraham, know for certain, 
Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. They will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on that nation they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. Now to Exodus chapter 6. Say therefore to the people of Israel, this is God talking to Moses, say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, Yahweh, covenant-keeping personal name of God. I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and you will be my God. Here in the scriptures this morning, on display for us is the covenant Keeping God, one intimately aware of, involved with his people, the needs of his people. Uh, in Exodus chapter 2, I preached through Exodus years ago at uh, one of the churches in Tampa. And Exodus chapter 2 was one of my, just, uh, it sticks with me, it has stuck with me. Uh, in Exodus chapter 2, we see God to be the God who hears, sees, and knows. Exodus 2 tells us that God heard their groaning, remembered his covenant, and saw the people of Israel. And the text says that God knew. God knew. And God's hearing and seeing and remembering and knowing in Scripture always leads to action. And finally, as we see it and as you have seen it unfold in the book of Exodus, God would act in power. And so as God is preparing his people to hear his word, he wants them to remember Exodus 19 verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. You remember your salvation. I want you to prepare yourself to hear my word, but remember your salvation. And God's power and sovereignty were on explicit and are on explicit display. They take center stage in the Exodus. I want to highlight just three quick things. God, in the Exodus, as, you, as you've seen over the last several weeks, he demonstrates that, that for the people of Israel that he is Lord of all the earth, in Egypt as much as in Israel. Uh, secondly, we see that he demonstrates his control and, and direction of all earthly events. And thirdly, we see the, just the beauty um, and the mystery of his sovereign choice. We see the beauty and the mystery of his sovereign choice. We can't, it's hard to rationalize God's choosing, right? It would make sense if, if God had said something to Israel, something to his people, like, I mean, you guys are really in a mess. You're very poor. You're poor. That's why I'm going to set my love and affection on you. You're poor. I, you know, Jesus talks a lot about the poor, loving the poor. That would, that would kind of make sense with our human brains. But he doesn't say that. We just see the fact that we can't 
we can't make sense of it. We can't rationalize it. It's always, God's choosing purposes are always, uh, it's always a secret hidden in God. Deuteronomy 7. Many of you have probably heard this before. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, but it is because the Lord loves you. In other words, I love you because I love you, God tells his people. I've loved you just out of my own sovereign good pleasure, just because I love you. There was nothing conditional, irrespective of anything about, of anything at all about these people. God acted in such a way that they were liberated by his victory in the Exodus, that they were cared for and protected by his providence in the wilderness wandering and finally brought to himself. So God's promise is salvation, and we see it come to pass, and God demonstrates his victory. He cares for his people, his chosen people. He brings him, his people to himself. Does that not sound familiar? Is it not true of those of us in the room today who are in Christ? As Paul writes to the Ephesians, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love. I loved you because I loved you. In love. He adopted, he had predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. God's promise to his people Israel that we see pop up here in verse 4 of chapter 19 is salvation. Remember your salvation. You yourselves saw what I did. Number two, God's call. God's call is obedience. Look at verses 5 and 6 of chapter 19. Now, therefore... Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Emphasis falls here in these verses on the word obey. But again, don't lose sight of verse 4. The grace that saves precedes the law which demands. And the people agree. On down a few verses, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Now, for the rest of chapter 19, God is going to prepare his people to receive his word. That's, what, that's what's happening in the, in the rest of chapter 19. Uh, I'm not going to read it again. Pro tip, if you're a visiting preacher at a church and you have a lot of text to get through, make, one of, one of, make, make these guys read it. Uh, I can't be walking out of here with a 50-minute sermon. That just that won't work. I won't get invited back. So you're welcome, Chad. Um, we're not going to read it again. But for the rest of chapter 19, what is happening is God is preparing his people to receive his word. 
That's what's happening in all of this. Set boundaries around the mountain. Don't let people come up. Don't let people break through. Wash your clothes. Don't have sex. All of those things. He's preparing his people to receive his word. And he's doing it in two ways. Number one, he does so by calling them to holiness. He does, he does so by calling them to holiness. He's, the, you get this consecration language. Sounds very much like a wedding language or marriage language. This is what the call is. This is, this is what's going on. They're, they're wash your garments, right? We don't know all of the, the, the physical and spiritual kind of exercises that they had to go through over these couple of days. But what we do know is that they were to wash their garments. Often in Scripture, uh, the, the clothes are used as kind of a symbol of the intentions of the wearer. Does this make sense? Clothes are often used in Scripture as, as symbols of the intentions of the wearer. So think about it like this. If you were to, you know, we leave here this afternoon and, and you pull up and you catch uh, a, a pretty car and in the back is this girl and she's got uh, all white on and she's got something on her head. If they still do those, I don't know. Veil. They still do those in weddings? Okay. Oh, 20 years ago. Uh, if, and you were to pull her over and be like, hey, why are you dressed like a bride? She would say, well, because I'm a bride and I'm on my way to get married. Clothes demonstrate the intentions of the wearer. Why is she dressed like a bride? Well, because she, she's going to get married. Married, and so they were. They were to put on. They were to wash their clothes, right? Clean clothes, pure and spotless. We've sheltered under the blood of the Lamb. We we we're aiming to live by God on the basis of grace and forgiveness, holiness. Secondly, um, or no, also on the topic of holiness, they were encouraged. They were commanded. Uh, not to have sexual relations with one another because that act involves kind of the wholeness of the human person. And on this topic, John Calvin remarks to be reminded that they were to be reminded that all earthly cares were as much as possible to be renounced. All earthly cares were as much as possible to be renounced that they might give their entire attention to the hearing of God's word. And so that's what's happening in the rest of chapter 19. And as we cross over into chapter 20, we have the second uh, sort of way that God calls his people to obedience. And it's, it's here in the giving of the law and the giving of the Ten Commandments. He, he calls his people to submit to his word. He calls them to holiness and he calls them to submit to his word. And again... We can't highlight this enough. We can't afford to highlight this enough. Look how he starts in chapter 20. God spoke all of these words saying, verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So chapter 19, remember your salvation, obey. Chapter 20, remember your salvation. I'm about to give the law. I'm about to call you to submit to the word, to, to obey. The grace that saves precedes the law that demands. 
I want to highlight this one other way. I just, I love the Old Testament. It, it's so good. But isn't it interesting? On this topic of how to talk about God's law, how to talk about the commands. I mean, praise the Lord. I'm not preaching next week. I told Chad, you got that one. You got the rest of the law. I'm given the part of the law that everybody knows. Everybody knows chapter 20. We've heard it before. Uh, this is the easy stretch. Uh, whoever's up next, I'm sorry. But when you take the law all together, I mean, it's a lot. It's a lot. We got several chapters here. It is a lot. But isn't it interesting that over in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, Israel is given instructions on how to talk about God's commands when their kids ask, hey, what's all this about? What's all this obeying God stuff about? And what does... What does the Lord instruct his people to say? When your son asks you in, time, in a time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all of his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there, that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always that he might preserve us alive as we live this day. The counsel of God's word is for our good always. It's for our good always. It is a law of freedom. It's a law of liberty. It began like this all the way back in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. And they enjoyed the freedom of the garden for just as long and only as long as they kept its law. What was that law? It was a single prohibition concerning the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And far from being a restriction on their freedom, it guaranteed their freedom. God's word, God's law, God's command, God's exhortation, it ensured their freedom. And so as we jump in here briefly to the Ten Commandments, I just, I just want to encourage you. And indeed, not just the Ten Commandments, but, but any of the commands that we find in Scripture. It would be a tremendous mistake to approach God's law, God's commands, God's word with any kind of anxiety or this underlying feeling that like we're constantly living under a threat, right? The Ten Commandments, and indeed the full counsel of God's Word, are not cramping restrictions on a full life that we might have otherwise enjoyed. Rather, they are the very gateway to the fullness of life that we all seek. So it would be a tremendous mistake 
for us to think that the Ten Commandments carry kind of an overarching negative tone or purpose. To do so would be to forget that a negative command offers far more freedom than a positive command. Does this make sense? For a, a positive command would restrict our lives to just one course of action, while a negative command leaves life open to every course of action except one, right? Does this make sense? So if I had a fish and I said, fish, you're a great pet fish, I've got you this 300-gallon tank with all of these awesome water features uh, and things to play with, um, just don't get out of the water. It's not going to go great for you outside of the water. Is that command, is that exhortation uh, limiting the fish's freedom? No. It's ensuring his freedom. And this is what happened in the Garden of Eden. It's been this always. This is the, 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 the plan for all of God's word. To lead us into what Jesus calls life and life to the full. And so the first four commandments, I'm not going to read them all again. First four commandments, God is instructing his people, calling his people, uh, instructing his people, exhorting his people on how we are to relate to him. How Israel is to relate to him. He says, remember what I taught you in Egypt. We live in a, a world full of pretend gods. I am the one True God, have none other but me. Don't carve images. Don't, in other words, don't worship me like the pagans worship their pretend gods. Don't create me in the image of my creation. Love me, worship me on my terms. Don't have carved images. Don't take my name in vain. Honor the the covenant name of God. Speak truthfully about me. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Cease striving. Biblical, I've already said this, biblical remembering assumes action. So work hard all week. Work hard all week so that you can rest. Depend on me. Every seventh day, rest. And enter the joy of your salvation. Depend on me. And in the last six, God is instructing his people on how they put their worship of God on display in the way that they relate to one another. He says, honor your fathers and your mothers. Take care of them. Speak well of them. They want what is good for you just like I, your heavenly father, want what is good for you. So honor them. Don't murder Don't murder. Don't play God with the lives of other people. You're not God. I'm God. Don't take life. Put positively, preserve life. Aim to preserve life at every turn. Don't commit adultery. Don't commit adultery. Honor the marriage vows. Don't 
break the bonds of marriage because it stands as a symbol of my faithfulness to you and your faithfulness to me. Don't steal. Look to me for your provision. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Don't lie. Imitate me. Speak the truth. Love one another in the way that you build one another up in the truth. And finally, don't covet. Don't covet or or envy what other people have. I, the Lord your God, am the source of all that you need. You see the pattern? Love God. Love one another. This is Jesus' interpretation of the entirety of the law. You remember the conversation he had? The Pharisees approach him in Matthew 22, and he, they're asking him, as they always are, trying to catch him in some kind of thing. <laughs> and uh, they, hey, man, what's the, what's, the, what's the greatest of all of these laws? There's a lot of laws. What's the greatest? What's the most important? And Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. That is the first, that is the great and first commandment. And he says, and the second one is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands depend, or hang, literally in the Greek, hang all the law and prophets. So here is Jesus' stated design for the full counsel of God's word. All of the law and prophets. So number one, God's promise, salvation. Number two, God's call, obedience. And number three, God's gift, blessing. God's gift, blessing. Two kind of sub points here. First, God's law or God's commands or God's word. I've kind of already said this, but I just want to highlight it for us this morning. Are for human flourishing. God gives us his word that we might flourish, just like the fish. I want my pet fish to flourish. So stay in the water. Look at verses, uh, look back to chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. Now, therefore, if you will, uh, emphasis on if here. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The significant if in verse 5, I just want to make sure we're clear on this, relates not to uh, covenant status, but to covenant enjoyment. This is not a climb this ladder and then you, will in, then you will kind of fall into this category of treasured possession, kingdom of priests, holy nation. No, our status, your status as redeemed comes by the act of God alone. Enjoyment of that status, this works perfectly. Equip disciples who enjoy Christ and evangelize the lost. That's your mission statement. Here it is, right here. Enjoyment of our identity in Christ. Don Whitney, in his book, this is off here on the side just quickly. If you've never read it, 
Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. I think it's in this book. That Don Whitney says, uh, obedience or a practice of the spiritual disciplines is the means by which we experience our union with Christ as communion with Christ. When we walk in obedience, when we pursue Jesus with discipline, that is where the Holy Spirit works to make our union with Christ, what is objectively true of you, if you're here this morning and you are in Christ, your union with Christ is experienced subjectively as communion with Christ, right? We all have this gap in our lives. This is what's true of us. This is what I'm experiencing. This is how I feel. Uh, There's a big gap. In between that gap is sanctification, work of the Holy Spirit, uh, obedience. So the if here is not about what's objectively true of us. It's about enjoying. It's about enjoying in our actual everyday life what is true. Our enjoyment of our status as redeemed comes by a responsive commitment to obedience. Some of you are married in this room and you know this to be true, that an enjoyment of your marriage, of of your actual legal and before God marriage, uh, largely hinges on how we do at keeping our vows, right? If you don't keep your vows perfectly, it doesn't mean your marriage goes away. But if you fight to keep the things that you said you were going to do at the altar before one another, you will have subjective enjoyment of your marriage far more so than if you left those things behind. Friends, obedience to the law of God, obedience to God's word is not your part in a two-sided bargain but a grateful response to what the Lord has unilaterally decided and accomplished in your life. Obedience to God's word is the path to experiencing our salvation, our union with Christ as real, tangible, everyday enjoyment of being known by God. It is where we enjoy. It is in obedience that we enjoy life as God's treasured possession. Life under the smile of God, his treasured possession. This is to be understood against the background of an absolute monarchy where theoretically a king of a country in this day and age owned everything. He owned everything. But the, the treasured possession would be maybe this like room in the castle set aside where some special things were that were like officially mine. We're watching Beauty and the Beast a lot. Got some girls. The West Wing, right? West Wing? Don't go in the West Wing. That's where, okay, good. You get it. My, 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 I own everything, does the Lord, and does a king in an absolutist monarchy, but, but this, these are the things that like are really mine. And that's what it means to be God's treasured possession. When we, live into submission, when we live in submission to God's word, we enjoy unbroken fellowship with and access to our Redeemer. That's what it means to be a kingdom of priests. 
We have access. We all have access to the king. You see, Israel lost this right, you'll see in a couple of weeks, at the golden calf. They, you know, all the Lord has said we will do. A week later, train wreck. Israel lost this at the golden calf. And the priestly lineage ends up being entrusted to Aaron and to the tribe of Levi. And that lasted until in the fullness of time, our Lord Jesus restored what was lost, making us all believers a kingdom of priests, possessing and called to enjoy the blessed privilege of access into his presence. Hebrews 10. Something. Friends, the law of God was addressed to those who had been brought out of bondage and its aim. God's word, his commands for us today, the aim of, it, of his word today is not to bring us into a new kind of bondage, but rather to establish us in our freedom and abundant life. Second subpoint. First subpoint, God's law is for human flourishing. Second subpoint, God's law is for the nations. God's law is for the nations. God's law is for our city. It's for this neighborhood. God's law is for the people who are apart from Christ in your workplace, in your neighborhoods, in your apartment complexes, at your universities. God's law is for the nations. And as I we're going to wrap it up here. So, band, if y'all want to cruise up here, you can. God's law is for the nations. So, obedience to God's word allows us to enjoy what is true of us, treasured possession and kingdom of priests, and what? What's the last one? Holy nation. A holy Nation, Friends, this is the point at which our status as treasured possession and our free access as kingdom of priests becomes a public testimony whereby we bear witness to our distinctiveness, whereby God is glorified in his people and the truth of the gospel is going forth to all those who have yet to believe. The purpose of God calling out for himself a holy nation was never that that, would, that blessing would just end there. Never. Israel was blessed to be a blessing. God promised Abraham that Israel would be a blessing to every family, every nation on earth. And the same is true of us, friends, in 1 Peter 2. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Once you were not a people, now you're a people. Beloved, verse 11, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, those wandering from one land to the next, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles Honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify you on the day 
of visitation. God's word, God's law, is for the nations. And friends, a heart that treasures Christ, that enjoys Christ, will be set free to love your neighbor. Loving our neighbor often feels like a tremendous threat to our own well-being. To love my neighbor as myself feels like a threat to me most days. But I know, I know this church, I know your desire, I know that you desire to equip disciples, to enjoy Jesus and evangelize the lost. That's your heart as a church. And loving our neighbors feels like a threat, so I want to encourage you. Take this just good gospel word from the Old Testament and dwell on it. Take every stitch of your self-love, take every ounce of your longing for happiness and gaze upon the gospel. Focus it all on Christ alone until he satisfies that longing in your soul. Only he could do it. Only he can do it. He is the never-diminishing fountain and fullness of life. And as he fills you, as you begin to walk in obedience and enjoy Christ, as he fills you, he will free you to love your neighbor as yourself, both in this body of Christ and in our community at large and even to the nations. So I'm going to pray for us. The band's going to lead us in uh, a time of response. But two things. Uh, If you're here this morning and you're not sure where you stand with Jesus, I want you to hear that he loves you. He died for you. He has a free gift to give you. Because he rose on the third day. And offers you life. And if you want to know what it means, what it's like to be found in Christ, to walk with him, then I, I want to encourage you, don't make your way out of this door, out of those doors today without talking to somebody. You can come talk to me, talk to one, any of these people you've seen on the stage, you can talk to the person that you came with. Don't walk away on this sweet, sweet gift of life with Jesus. And secondly, If you're here this morning and you feel like, man, the way I look at God and the way I look at his word. Sorry I called you up here so early, by the way. Y'all are doing great. Um, If you feel like, man, the way I look at God's word is, is a little backwards. I would just encourage you during this song, give that to the Lord. Right? Give that to the Lord. Ask the Spirit to work through the Word to open your eyes to see that everything this world offers is uh, just pales in comparison to enjoying Christ, to making Him the treasure of your life, and to, and to actually be able to experience that by walking in obedience to His Word. And so maybe you've got sin that you need to walk away from, you need to confess, you need to lay down. Do that during this song, all right? Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. Thank you for the way your spirit promises to use it. Um, 
we're all united in our primary need here this morning, and that is more of Jesus, more of Christ. And so uh, we love you. We thank you for this church. God, I pray that you would uh, have your way with her, declaring the the glories of the gospel and the fame of Jesus Christ in our city. So be honored in our response this morning. In Christ's name, amen.